0: This podcast episode is supported by Prudential. If you're at home thinking about your financial plan, so are we. Prudential helps one in seven Americans with their financial needs. That's over 25 million people. With over 90 years of investment experience, our thousands of financial professionals can help with secure video chat or on the phone. We make it easy for you with online tools, e-signatures, and no medical exam life insurance. Plan for better days. Go to Prudential.com or talk to an advisor.
1: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. What happens when a parent or teacher models curiosity, integrity, and empathy for a child? Psychologist Angela Duckworth says the kid picks up on it. A child, even a baby, is constantly watching the adults in his life and modeling their
2: behavior. You can model for your kids, you know the things that you want. And if you are truly kind, I think it is very likely that your children will model your kindness. And if you are truly forgiving, you know they will, you know, model that. And if you're truly not, then they won't. Aspen
1: Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. It's not just genes that determine the makeup of a person. We learn how to be grateful, vulnerable, and fearless by modeling others. Angela Duckworth studies self-control, perseverance, and character. She started Character Lab, a nonprofit that works to advance the science and practice of character development, and she wrote the New York Times bestseller, Grit. In her conversation with Jackie Bezos, Duckworth talks about the role models she had as a child, how too much structure can be a bad thing, and why it's so hard to watch our children fail. Jackie Bezos co-founded the Bezos Family Foundation. She advocates for
3: childhood development and youth leadership. Here's Bezos. Angela, you didn't start off your life wanting to study character. What did you really think that you were going to do?
2: You know, I never really actually thought about this word, character, very seriously until I met these two educators named Dave Levin and Dominic Randolph. But at some point in recent history we were on a stage somewhere uh, at the Aspen Ideas mm-hmm. Festival. Um, and they really liked this word character. I was a, a psychology graduate student when I met them. And I knew what I was studying, which was grit and also self-control and delay of gratification. But I really hadn't thought about this word character very seriously. But um, they liked it because as educators, they thought about children. And it was a term that... As Aristotle uh, also used and Martin Luther King and Benjamin Franklin and Maria Montessori really just to say that in in the development of a child um, we should think about whether they're developing into honest people and kind people and empathic people and yes hardworking and passionate people and people who can control their tempers when provoked and all those things they liked this word character to um, to embody in, in, in all of its resonance. Um, so I have come to love the word character and I'll just say this uh, which is that I think um, other people might call them social emotional learning competencies. To me that is a lot of syllables, but it, fine, um, 21st century skills, soft skills, life skills. Um, I think we're returning to this uh, very, really ancient idea that to develop into our full selves, it's not just our GPA or our SAT score, but all of those things that make us people that we're proud of.
3: That's very true. I think we had lost sight of who we want to be when we're teenagers. How do we want to show up in the world? Who do we want to be? And I think that the current circumstances, which I will not elaborate on, um, give us more opportunity than ever before to think about how we want to show up in the world. So Angela, what inspires you about this work?
2: I have a, um, a vision of, um, uh, uh, of what could be the case, um, but is far from the case today. Um, And that vision is inspired by, actually, a particular individual. So, um, for example, there's this teacher named Jeff Lee, who teaches eighth grade math in Harlem. And he is the best teacher ever. I mean, think of your favorite teacher. That's what Jeff Lee is like. I mean, he's so... uh, so great at bringing out what his kids can do. His test scores are phenomenal, and these are kids who are truly 99% from free and reduced-price lunch backgrounds from no advantage at all. So there's that. So they've objectively accomplished skills in math that nobody really thought was possible. But that's not why I think that Jeff Lee, as a vision of what is possible in education, is inspiring to me. It's really that when he goes in there, he thinks about all those things that we listed. I mean, he really intentionally thinks about like gratitude. Yeah, I know I'm teaching fractions today, but we're also going to do gratitude and he does it. And he teaches them that failure is nothing to be afraid of. And he teaches them that sharing, you know, things that are really make you vulnerable, that that's okay. And so in all those ways, you've got this 8th grade teacher who's bringing out the best in his kids by objective standards, but also by those things which are very hard to measure or even to talk about. And my vision is that this psychologically wise teacher named Jeff Lee, that we could have a psychologically wise teacher in every classroom in the United States, regardless of zip code, and indeed that we could have a psychologically wise parent in every home. And you can just use your imagination to think about what this country would be if that happened.
3: So I thought I'd bring you, you know, take you kind of to the labs of some of the the, um, scientists that are doing research on early brain development and talk to you about what character looks like in an infant. At the University of Washington in Washington State, Um, at the Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences, they have been doing a lot of work on early brain development. And um, they also possess this wonderful piece of um, equipment. I think they're the only people that have a magnetoencephalography machine. So one of the things that they've been able to do is actually in real time see exactly what is happening in that infant-toddler brain during interactions with a mother, or a father, or a caregiver. Let's picture one of the scientists seeing, you know, uh, being interacting with a newborn child, just only hours old. And he, you know, sticks out his tongue at the baby. She doesn't know she has a tongue, but she sticks her tongue out at the scientist. Then he makes an O with his mouth. She makes an O with her mouth, right? So the right areas are lighting up in her brain to have a conversation with only being hours old.
2: You know, I think that um, when I imagine this psychologically wise teacher in every classroom, I mean, just in the mind's eye, you know, Jeff Lee in every classroom, no matter what zip code. Honestly, when I think of a psychologically wise parent in every home, you know who I'm thinking about, right? Like, yeah, like that, like that. I mean, can you just imagine? Like, nobody would be mean. I mean, like everyone would be loved um, and uh, and things would turn out so much better. Um, but I do think that, you know, your interest in the earliest days of childhood, you know, one of the things that science is showing is that, you know, for decades, for millennia, we thought that nothing much was going on when babies were like just sitting there and getting fed, you know, and then sleeping or not sleeping. And actually, so much is going on. There isn't a moment of life where children are not learning. There is not a moment in life where they're not imitating. There is not a moment in life where they are not generalizing. You know, they're figuring things out. And when they see you talk a certain way, um, act a certain way, flinch or not flinch with people who maybe aren't the same color as you maybe of you know different social class, everything that you can imagine that you, know, you would care about bringing out in your kids, they are watching from, from the earliest days. And I think this brain science is probably probably sharpening and affirming intuitions that, I'm, I'm thinking that there are some parents who probably didn't need the neuroscience study because they, on intuition, were kind of great parents. But I think a lot of us, myself included, you know, we're improved when we parent, when we actually understand what is going on scientifically in human development. How do you think that
3: it is, you already alluded to this, but about parents, how they model character and have no idea that, that, is, that they're, you're being constantly watched? I'm
2: gonna tell you about this um, science experiment that was run just a year ago by this young woman named Julia Leonard, and it goes like this. You have a 15-month-old baby and the baby's in a high chair. And uh, in front of the baby, an experimenter is going to do one of three things. One a third of the babies just watches the experimenter do like kind of like nothing. It's a control group. Like, you know, the experimenter's just there, kind of whatever, doing stuff that adults do. Um, the second group of babies watches the experimenter really struggle with a little toy. It's actually one of those little keychains, like carabiner and like, you know, like, and really struggle and kind of like obviously struggle. But eventually the experimenter gets what she wanted to get done, and so the baby gets to watch struggle, eventually followed by triumph. And then the third group of babies gets to watch the experimenter easily solve the little puzzle, right? And so what you find is that these 15-month-old babies generalize from just watching just a couple of minutes of this happen and when they're given a totally different toy that requires some struggle, some grit, they're much more likely to persist and to persist longer when they have watched a role model themselves struggle. And the lesson here, I think, is that so many young people grow up and they watch the the highlight reel on YouTube of, you know, the person they admire and, you know, a musician, an athlete, a, a tech entrepreneur, they see the highlight reel, what they don't see is the struggle. And actually, I think this is not just true of young people. I go out of my way to tell my entire lab when I get rejected from a scientific journal, I not only tell them that I was rejected, I send around by email the rejection letter, which usually is like, whoever wrote this is a total idiot. They obviously don't understand either psychology or statistics, and then, you know, these things can be like 11 single space pages of pure venom. And I want them to see someone telling me that I'm a total idiot. And I want them to know that I was kind of a little bit crushed by that. Like, it even made me sometimes cry. I want them to know that. Not that I came back and I was inv- No, but like, actually, Angela Duckworth was temporarily devastated. And then I want them to see me bounce back. I want them to see me eventually figure out... What was worthwhile in that criticism, criticism, and what wasn't, and then, and then, you know, by dint of her effort and a little bit of luck, you know, end up doing something. And so I think that's the the modeling stories that we're not modeling invincibility, we're not modeling perfection, we're not modeling highlight reels. But I do think it's helpful as a parent to be intentional in modeling Mm -hmm. the reality of trying to be a good person and trying to be a great person and how hard it is, but how with struggle there is hope.
3: Yeah, we have to be human, sometimes superhuman. I have seen Angela put on a cape occasionally.
2: (laughs) Have you seen me cry yet? I don't yes. think so. Have you? I heard you on the phone. Oh, okay. That uh, was, yeah. Because uh-huh. you know life's hard.
3: <laughs> it is hard. Yeah. Uh, so tell me we're talking about modeling. How did your parents model character?
2: You know, my parents grew up in China, um, and um, I would say that in some ways the model was not obvious to me. Um, You know, my dad was a, you know, classic, um, you know, if you were a, a, a rich Chinese guy, born in 1932, you, know, you might not develop all of the character strengths um, that we would hope um, uh, for our own kids. And so my dad was you know, maybe not an obvious model of all the character strengths Jack and I talked about. Um, but I would say um, that he modeled uh, curiosity and grit for me. Um, so what came out of his mouth was sometimes like, you have to go to Harvard and you have to be at least a senator. He literally said that once, you have to at least be a senator. <laughs> at least a senator, like, not much actually above a senator, but anyway. Um, But in his modeling, right? Because modeling isn't just what comes out of your mouth. In fact, it's not what comes out of your mouth. It's what you do. And in the way he lived his life, he was extremely passionate about his work, which was chemistry. And then also, he was really curious. So I'll I'll, I'll give this example. When I went to Orgo, and some of you had the pleasure of taking Orgo, right? Um, And some of you used to be pre-med and anyway, water under the bridge. But I took Orgo in chemistry, in organic chemistry in uh, college. And I remember hearing the click, 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 click of all these multicolored pens as, you know, furiously, uh, you know, students were like trying to take down every possible equation and, you know, it was like a stenography class. But my dad had modeled um, what it really meant to be as a scientist is just to think, right? So I didn't take down any notes. I was just really listening to the teachers and then I'd photocopy the notes of the person next to me. Um, And so that modeling of like really thinking, you know, like my dad was always thinking. He was so curious. So he modeled Grit and he modeled curiosity. And my mother um, was in some ways a stereotypical Asian female, except for not the tiger mom kind. Um, You know, her cultural background had raised her to be quote unquote a good wife, you know, extremely obedient, anything my dad wanted. Um, When I graduated from college, she said, um, You know, Angela, I'm really proud of you. You're ready to be a wife. Uh (laughs) Um, So she was a product of her generation. Um, as we all are, right? Um, uh, And so uh, she modeled kindness for me. My mother would give you the food off the table, um, she gave my birthday presents away, um, uh, she gave all of our birthday presents away, and she didn't actually buy new ones, so like that was a lesson, I think. Um, but anyway, I think that when we ask this question, as so many parents email me or call me, and am like, oh, you know, the parenting question, you know, it really is the most important thing you can do to model for your kids, you know, the things that you want. And if you are truly kind, I think it is very likely that your children will model your kindness. And if you are truly forgiving you know they will you know model that and if you're truly not then they won't I do want to say something about genetics because it's not just modeling when a parent has a child who does the same thing it is it is not just modeling and I don't want to ignore genetics because your DNA that you inherited from your mom and dad does have an influence on everything about you everything about your political persuasion whether you enjoy coffee or you hate the taste of coffee um, and your grit uh, and your curiosity, so I don't want to, you know, say that, you know, we're completely blank slates at birth, because we're not. Um, but I also want to say that a complete understanding of human genetics um, also tells you that there really is almost nothing except for maybe eye color and, you know, things that are really like beyond psychology that, that aren't influenced by modeling, by, by culture, um, you know, by being in certain environments versus others.
0: This podcast episode is supported by Prudential. If you're at home thinking about your financial plan, so are we. Prudential helps one in seven Americans with their financial needs. That's over 25 million people. With over 90 years of investment experience, our thousands of financial professionals can help with secure video chat or on the phone. We make it easy for you with online tools, e-signatures, and no medical exam life insurance. Plan for better days. Go to Prudential.com or talk to an advisor.
3: So I thought that one of the things that we would do was open this up early for questions because I think that it's much more interesting to hear what you want to know and what you're thinking. I think we have somebody right here.
4: Um, What was profound for me in my childhood is that every day at 6 o'clock, my mother would run in the kitchen and come out with the sandwich, and on the stoops would be a homeless person. And she would feed had all these homeless people coming every day to feed and um I think it ingrained in my brain because I'm very passionate about helping children who are underserved and I kind of help get them ready to learn to read because I'm working with children who struggle with reading by telling them you struggle with reading but I struggle with computers Mm. and that immediately empowers them and they'll show me the computer and uh they'll help me as we get all the teachers to help them. So thank you, you kind of um, validated it. (laughs)
2: I think there's uh, two lessons. That one is the modeling of vulnerability, which is easier said than done. Um, And also, you know, we give so much to kids, especially kids of privilege, um, but I think that we should be asking all children to be helpful. You know, we give so much to them, you know, it's like, oh, and now you have another tutor and like another enrichment program, another wonderful experience. We should be asking them to help, you know, like help do stuff. We know whether it's chores or uh, public service or um, really like small things, big things. I'm a huge proponent of all children, when it's legal to have a paid job with a boss who is not your mom and not your dad will therefore be quite irate with you if you're late or if you don't do things the right way. I think kids have um, so much, uh, especially some kids and I think that actually being asked To do something and to be helpful is actually part of growing up, and I think it's missing in the lives of a lot of children who have kind of everything else.
4: My question to you on character building, um, what concerns me is in the teenage years, all the cyber bullying on social media, how can we create in the schools character development to combat that?
2: You know one of the as a psychologist I will say what 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 social media does is it makes it possible to have seemingly intimate personal conversations um, but without um, the actual thing that happens when you're with somebody, which is like you can see them and you can see their emotion and it's real. So it's both real and not real at the same mm-hmm. time. There's this kind of, um, you know, veil of uh, anonymity in some cases when people are just anonymously doing things on social media, or for the grown-up version of this, you know, like really mean Twitter exchanges. Um, like I remember just watching Lindsey Vaughn in the Olympics and she said something that was like, you know, her political beliefs and you can see all the people who tweeted at her and it's just like, oh my, gosh, you know, this is kind of grown-up cyberbullying. So it happens at, um, at, at at ages that are both young and old. So this this um, combination of it being personal and yet strangely anonymous and distance is, I think, very dangerous. And I, I don't know that there's any easy solution. And by the way, technology is obviously not going away, and social media is obviously not mm-hmm. going away either. Um, I guess I would say this. I do think awareness is, um, like understanding that these things are a problem and even if you had a conversation with your teenager and like talking about how like when you're on some of these social media platforms it is it is it feels extremely personal and intimate and also is like weirdly not because you're not in the same room i mean my kids follow people they've never met i find that so weird it's like you just like saw what this kid ate for breakfast and you know who her boyfriend like you've never met the boyfriend or the kid but yeah you know what she had for breakfast it's like so odd. So I guess, you know, I don't have a glib, easy answer, but I do think actually starting with, you know, understanding it and like taking it as an object of interest and mm-hmm. like talking about, you know, the strange psychology of these forums is, is one place to begin.
4: Uh, thank you. Uh,
1: you mentioned um, uh, nature versus nurture. And, um, I'm in an endless discussion sometimes with my wife and, and three boys about building character. And w- what's your sense about structure versus freedom for them? because you hear a lot about strength building through structure sometimes, um, so I'm wondering about that.
2: So, um, uh, you know, without knowing like, how things already are, it's hard for me to give good advice, but I will say this. You know, again, assuming that since we are in this very beautiful context of Aspen, that you are on the more advantaged versus less advantaged side of the socioeconomic spectrum, I think that a lot of kids uh, who grow up with um, a lot of affordances have too much structure you know, it's like you know, at three o'clock you're going to see your tennis coach, and at four o'clock you have French, and at five thirty there's a massage, and at six o'clock we're going to do yoga. You know, like, and it's all good stuff, but it's so structured. Um, and uh, the reason I don't think that is great as a recipe for development, is that, you know, as, um, as I sometimes put it to educators, you know, at some point, kids have to jump the gear shift. Like, they're not on the passenger seat anymore, and it's their job to steer the car, and figure maybe an outdated analogy, um, assuming there's still cars that have actual drivers. But like, you know, I think that with my own kids, I have tried um, um, to, you know, like, let them screw up, and like, you know, if they didn't have their summer planned, What are you gonna do? Are you gonna go plan their summer? Or at some point, do you let them just have a boring summer because they never actually got their act together to plan out their summer? And I think some kids get to 18 and they've never had that and oh my gosh, now they're 22 and they've never had And guess what, when you're 23 and you've never had mommy or daddy like structuring like your very perfect life and that's the first time where you have to do that job, I think it's really hard. Um, I'm a working mom, so my advantage is that I'm so busy that I just can't like, structure my kids' lives that much, um, but, I, but I do think it's a, it's a meta lesson. Kids of course need some structure. They need consistency. They need to know that there's food in the refrigerator and that their parents are going to basically be there for them, but I don't think they need their parents to solve every problem or to plan every hour.
0: One thing I see is so many parents protect their kids from failing and they've got to win everything and all this, and yet, it seems to me, building character, you have to be able to accept Mm -hmm. failure, and as you say, rebound, show some grit, and move forward. Do, Do you have any wisdom on that?
2: Yeah, you know, it's almost cliche to talk about failing forward, failing fast, like every tech entrepreneur, not naming names, but in their annual letter, for example. We'll talk about this, um, um, you know, but pick your favorite one. No, but like, it's true. It's almost cliche in Silicon Valley, and, and, and you know, like if you go to Google Images and you type in failure, there's just like a bajillion wonderful, exciting quotes. But the, re- thing, you know, the reason why big things become cliche is because they're true often. Um, and so the, the question is more like how, right? And why is it so hard to watch our kids fail? And by the way, what is the psychology of failure? I mean, what's the big deal? You know, I asked this question of developmental psychologists because really little kids, like babies, infant, you know, toddlers, they fail all day. You know, I mean, like, even in eating a meal, they fail, like, 45 times, right? They can't, like, get the food in their mouth, things break, you know, it's just a disaster, right? But you don't see embarrassment on their faces, and you don't see that, like, having these, like, you know, meta-tortured conversations, like, should I try to eat the applesauce next time? I don't know, didn't go so well last time, maybe I'll hide my mistakes. No, they just, like, you know, do it. And the developmental psychologist said that they haven't learned to actually be afraid yet, Mm -hmm. Um, and part of that is, you know, the natural, Development of emotions like embarrassment and 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 that that comes online later. But part of it, she thinks, is that you know, um, right around the age that kids actually go to school and they enter a context in which there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer, and also there's a ton of comparison. Right? I mean. You know, kids will look around the class, they kind of know who's doing really well, and they, they also know who's not doing well, and who got picked first for kickball and who didn't, and that actually now raises the stakes so much, and that's around the age of five where kids begin to um, really fear failure. And for some kids, I think they get over it, and they develop very healthy attitudes toward a failure. You know, if you ask Katie Ledecky's coach what makes Katie Ledecky extraordinary, he literally said, and he has this in National Geographic, he's like, you know, I think I'm just gonna make one PowerPoint slide, which Just this, like she is not afraid of failure, and she works her ass off every single practice, and that will be the end of my talk, Um, because it's not her wingspan, and it is not her stature, though she's a little bit taller than average. You know, it's not like her fast twitch muscles. um, You know, yes, she has a perfect stroke, but it's because of her approach. Every uh, every practice, he said, not like sometimes, but every practice, Katie Ledecky goes in there desiring failure, pushing herself to the point of failure, setting up challenges that she can't yet do. Um, and so I think the how is, is um is very much bound up with like why failure is so hard. And and how Katie Ledecky does that, I think, is to have learned from her experience and probably from some gentle urging and modeling from the people who love her, to have learned that actually it's it's no big deal. You know, for a lot of kids, especially I call them the fragile perfects, because I do teach at an Ivy League university, and the kids who have never gotten a B, like ever, Mm -hmm. for even a marking period, and never got cut from the team, and always been popular. You know, they're the most afraid of failure because they have never had it. And so I think our—you know—I don't want to trip my kids while they're walking. You know, it's like I'm not—you know—planting um, landmines, but I think we should allow it. We should be—we should be prepared for it. We should be intentional, and we should be ready to have those conversations. Like, God totally sucks that you did not make the ballet you know core like you didn't make this class that is awful and be empathic and then like show them that the world did not come to an end Um, and then you know like that that you know again and again i think is where those uh, ceos who you know write about it and those wonderful paragons of grit who demonstrate i think actually that is how they they got to where they are
5: Um, first of all thank you this is such a great session Jackie thank you so much for doing this and Angela thank you Um, so both of you just talked about um, kids being somewhat fragile um, and especially once they get to college having not experienced the kinds of challenge that um, or struggle or conflict that you know maybe an earlier generation might have experienced they're sort of a different animal on campus and um, I'm wondering what the Um, once they get there you know if we have not provided for them the stuff that you're suggesting that we do provide if our kids are not that young and now they're approaching college age what can we do and and uh, what do we do about the fact that now words are considered so challenging and difficult and uncomfortable and that that um, civility is being lost
2: So these are great big questions. I will say that my dream course for every university is Failure 101, where you would sign up and you would uh, set out to fail. You know, maybe if it were like an easy course, you could fail 10 things that semester, but like, if you really wanted to try the advanced option, you would try to fail like 50 things, right? And maybe you could make a list at the beginning, like you know, rush this sorority, try out for this team, ask this person out, learn how to do like, you know, and I would hope that you would try, of course, to succeed, but I love the idea of just, you know, you know in psychology, we actually call this exposure therapy. So when people have phobias, Right, and in a room uh, this big, I'm, you know, some of you probably have personal experience with this because phobias aren't that uncommon. If somebody has a phobia of spiders, you know, the problem is that they will so arrange their life around avoiding spiders that it never extinguishes the fear. Right? What Jackie was able to do with young Jeff was to extinguish that fear of doing something that you didn't think at all you could do by just exposing him to it and then he discovers that, oh my gosh, it's not that bad and actually I can use some of my other strengths here. That's what the clinical therapists do with phobic patients, you know, they see a picture of a spider and then, you know, there's a spider in a tank and then eventually, you know, actually like, you know, hold a spider in your hand. But what if we did exposure therapy for failure with this thing that you have trained your whole life? I mean, if you get to an Ivy League school or a Stanford or MIT, your whole life you're trying to succeed and not fail. You're trying to have a perfect GPA so you can be the valedictorian. You want a perfect SAT score. Perfect, perfect, perfect. But I would love there to be failure 101, where the only way to good grade, to a good grade is actually by screwing up to expose you to that. And I really wish that for these beautiful, perfect young people that I, you know, like I look at their resumes and I'm like, this is too perfect, right? Varsity tennis when I was in ninth grade, captain, nationally ranked, valedictorian, like everything perfect because I really don't think that greatness comes from perfection and that kind of buffing and polishing that kids are doing with their resumes, that is a really good way to be boring for one thing. And it's a really good way to live your whole life. You know, your whole life being afraid of what could go wrong instead of trying something that might, one time out of ten, go, go well.
0: Okay,
3: so um, you talked a lot about failure. Do you, do you have any advice for working with youth or youth who have faced repeated failure or because of circumstances have, have very few resources, haven't had a lot of opportunities for success, so they're on the other spectrum. And so that's the first part. And the second part is, and is there a point where it's too late to learn grit or to learn character or to learn how to bounce back from that?
2: I mean, partly, you know, Jackie and I are I know how we feel, which is that it's never too late. By the way, brain science is on our side. Yes, you know, is. brain plasticity is all across the lifespan, and we have evidence of people actually changing, um, usually, by the way, in positive ways. Mostly when people develop, it is mostly across adulthood um, in the direction of good, not bad, notable exceptions, but generally people do grow up and mature in in good ways. Um, here's my my last piece of advice about all this, you know, psychology and uh, of character development failure. You know, I don't wanna um, say that it's like pep talks um, or TED Talks um, that actually do a lot of the hard work. I think it is actually experience. And here's my specific advice. You know, if you have a kid who has, for example, a learning disability or socioeconomic um, disadvantage, and, and frankly, their life has been just one setback, one, like, bad episode after another, you know, there's a limit to the TED Talks and the pep talks. They have to experience small wins. And so I would say your job as the, you know, adult in the room would be like, what can I do to give this kid a small win? You know, what can I do to lay things out in such a way? And I'll end with this science experiment. When you take rats and you put them in cages, um, and, and if they get exposed to uncontrollable adversity like shocks that they can't predict and they can't control, they quickly become helpless and depressed, But if you can just rig the cage, as a loving parent would do, pardon the metaphor, but if you rig it with a little plastic wheel that they can turn that turns the shock off, they actually develop into resilient rats who in adulthood are actually much stronger and much more inured to the effects of adversity. So your job is to create small wins. Right? I don't want you to coddle your kids. I don't want you to overstructure their lives. But if you have a kid who has like zero self-esteem and you can look at their life history and be like, yeah, I can see where that would be your conclusion, you need to structure their life so that they can turn a little wheel and make something happen and then turn a little more and make something and put them on that positive virtuous cycle to where they know that they can do something.
5: Angela, thank you so much. Thank you,
3: Jackie. Yeah. Thank you. So thank you for coming today. We really appreciate it.
1: Angela Duckworth is a psychology professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She wrote the book Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, and is a MacArthur genius. Jackie Bezos is president of the Bezos Family Foundation. She pioneered the Aspen Institute's Bezos Scholars Program. It sends 30 high school students and their educators to the Aspen Ideas Festival each summer. Their conversation was held on June 26 at the Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keelene Brettman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.
0: This podcast episode is supported by Prudential. If you're at home thinking about your financial plan, so are we. Prudential helps one in seven Americans with their financial needs. That's over 25 million people. With over 90 years of investment experience, our thousands of financial professionals can help with secure video chat or on the phone. We make it easy for you with online tools, e-signatures, and no medical exam life insurance. Plan for better days. Go to Prudential.com or talk to an advisor.